Diving into Daniel chapter 12. Um, Today, we're going to talk about eternity. And when we talk about eternity, it's going to put us in the realm of of talking uh, a little bit about uh, heaven and a bit about hell. And and so if if you're visiting with us for the first time, um, I I don't want you to be like, oh, no, I chose Hell Sunday. Grab the kids, sneak out the back. Uh, It's this is not like a regular themed focal point of what we do here at the church. Now, hell is real and we're not, we're not ignoring that, but it's, I just want you to know, it's not like you come in every Sunday and hellfire and brimstones, what's going to be thrown at you here. Okay. But we're going to, we're going to talk about these as it, as it relates to, um, the eternal uh, picture of, of where we go and what God has created us for. But more, more than hell, I want to tell you that we're interested in not, not where you've been in life, where you're going, Right. We're interested about uh, God's message, the gospel that brings us freedom and experiencing that freedom for eternity in his presence. So, so that will be the primary emphasis of what we're going to talk about today. And we're not just going to just literally scare the life out of you, right? So while we talk about hell, hell is also in a way today could be referred to as a hell no Sunday. Okay. So while we look at it, we, we don't want you going there. Right. So, so we're going to, we're going to talk about, um, eternity, why we don't even like to discuss sometimes some of the pictures that are created in eternity, how to deal with it and, um, what that looks like. But, but when we think about you for a moment, um, I think it's important we approach this passage, knowing that eternity is going to be discussed to let the need for not just you to connect to God, but for the place in which God leads you, the people around you to be able to connect to God and understand what it means to have a relationship with him. Um, when you, when a need becomes a burden within your heart, I think you carry the heart of God. When, when, when God looks at us, he sees our need for salvation, which is why he's called the savior or rescuer. He comes for us and bears that burden on, on our behalf so that we can be reconciled to him. And God cares that need in a beautiful way for the well-being of others. When you think about this valley, I think it is a very godly biblical thing to look around, see need, and carry the heart of God for that. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 says, God reconciled us to him, and he's also given you the ministry of reconciliation. And what that means is God wants to now work through you to reconcile the world to him and what he has done for us on the cross. That's why we say as a church, like our desire is for everyone that comes here to experience a transforming relationship in Jesus that transforms your relationship with others. Jesus said two greatest commands, love God, love others. So when we look at this text today, it's not about this intellectual exercise or just explaining these verses. It's connecting what Daniel is saying here in line with our heart and then seeing the need as it could be expressed through our lives because of what God does in us and giving that ministry of reconciliation, having allowed us to first experience it in him. And and so we're talking about both uh, heaven and hell today. Hell isn't a subject every week, although last week we did brush up on our Satan theology. So we are tending to to, uh, go on the the dark side the last couple of weeks here. But, um, But we're all about what God desires for us in knowing him and enjoying him uh, forever. And so Daniel chapter 12 is where we find ourselves. And by the way, if you've been with us in this series, I think 
whether you physically do this or not, I think it's just worthy to just raise your hand and give yourself a pat on the back because the book of Daniel is not an easy book. Uh, it's, it's apocalyptic in nature, which is a very difficult uh, genre of literature. And even the, the narrative story that's told, there's a lot of hardship there in trying to figure out how Daniel deals with his culture and relating it to how we deal with our culture. And you think how the book starts, Daniel's taken into captivity. He sees family and friends slaughtered before him. He gets into Babylon where he was taken captive. He wants to be a vegetarian. That almost costs him his life. His BFFs are thrown into a flaming furnace. They almost lose their life, but God spares them. He's thrown into a lion's den. He has these visions of these apocalyptic beasts that would just freak anybody out. I mean, Daniel is a, is a rough book, but it also answers some very significant questions in the culture in which we live in because Daniel's story is about Babylon. New Testament writers write about Babylon in New Testament, even though, even though the Babylonians had been wiped, they're, they're gone. They're, they're no longer in existence. They kept referring to the life we live as it relates to Daniel and the life that he lived in Babylon knowing that culture always fights against God. And so there's always a, a tension in the life of, of a believer in trying to figure out how to navigate through and honoring God with life by, uh, while still living in a world that's filled with sin. And so this book, though difficult, also points us to a, a beautiful picture of how to live for God. And this and this story now and looking at Daniel chapter 12 and talking about eternity gives us an, an opportunity to, to look at the scope of God's greater picture, God's ultimate picture of what he's achieving in this world. I think when we live our lives, God calls us to live our lives with an eternal perspective in mind. Because even as believers, sometimes you can get your little corner of this world, this little kingdom established, and you live for it as if like it is going to last for eternity. But what Daniel is learning in Daniel 12 and sharing with us is that in the perspective of things, this world was designed to pass away. But you have an opportunity to, to live for something greater. And having that eternal perspective becomes an important part of that that kind of wakes us up to be like, man, why is it? Like if I win, even if I win the battle at this at the end of the day, is it really worth just staking so much for? And so Daniel uh, just starts to express the, the end of the story, the, the destiny of our souls. Daniel chapter 12, and he hinges this on two questions. And those questions are in, in verse 6 and verse 8. And so we're going to approach it by looking at these two questions and giving an explanation of this passage. And then I'm going to look at some themes that Daniel highlights here to, to explain even within our culture how some, some questions arise out of the idea of eternity. So with all that being said, Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, this is the first question that uh, is posed in this passage. It says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? So they're saying, Okay, when's this eternal picture start, God? So if you remember Daniel chapter 7 up until this point, this is an apocalyptic uh, demonstration or expression of what the end of the world is like. And, and, and now they're asking this question, okay, when, when will that take place? And so this question is built out of what, what has just been communicated to them in the very beginning of this chapter. So let me just read it to us. It says, now at that time, Michael, who is the archangel, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress 
such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. So you see this great time of distress having not been experienced. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So, so in the story, he says, okay, there's going to be this time of devastation as like never before. And in verse two, he, he talks about your soul, your soul created to experience eternity. Your soul was created for eternity and the fact that your soul will be resurrected. In the explanation of the resurrection in verse 2, he, dis, he decide, or divides uh, the eternal picture into two, two categories. And one that live in, lives in this, this righteousness and one that lives in this disgrace. And then the emphasis becomes, in verse 3, the idea of looking forward to this e- eternity where you shine in the brightness of the expanse of heaven, it says. And so while he talks about both the idea of heaven and hell... In this picture, he's also giving us the expectation or the, 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 the welling up within our soul to look forward uh, to eternity. And so they ask the question, okay, what will be the end then, God? And in verse 7, that's where they get the answer. I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever. So he's swearing to one who is the authority of all, right? So he's saying this statement is true based on this, that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of his holy people, all these events will be completed. I'm going to tell you a snippet of what he's talking about here because we've already addressed this. Um, But this is a picture of he's going back to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. He's talking about that last week, which was seven years. In the middle of that week, there was the last three and a half years. And that time times, which is two times and a half time, is that three and a half year period. And so what God's saying is, as you're looking to the end here, if you want to know when that end's going to happen, it's going to happen after this time times half time. And as soon as they finish the shattering of God's holy people, all these events will be completed. So the answer to your question, verse five and six is after this three and a half. And, and then he gives this statement that raises Daniel's concerns, right? He says, he says in this, this verse seven, the shattering of the power of the holy people. Like now Daniel knows, okay, this includes me. And he's kind of saying, now what, what, what are you talking about? Like, um, God, the, sh- the demise of, I mean, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm hearing what you're saying. It's saying demise of my people. Can you give an explanation of what it is you're talking about? And so in verse eight, that's what Daniel says. As for me, I heard, but could not understand. I mean, anybody give you such um, far out news that you just, it takes a minute to get your mind wrapped around it. And it's maybe it's so bad. You're like, now what, what, what happened? And so Daniel's like, uh, I heard you, but. No caprende, right? So, so it goes on and says, so I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? Like you're saying shattering. Does that mean annihilated? I mean, what does this look like? Verse nine, he said, this is a great answer. Go your way, Daniel. Like, I'm not going to tell you. That's what he said. Go your way, Daniel. For these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. Bah humbug, right? Um, one, something just to keep in mind is that I think what God is, is focusing in, or I know what God's focusing in based on this text, 
is he's getting Daniel to look to where the salvation is ultimately coming that will bring about this resurrection of hope in the future, which is Jesus. So they're already alluding to Daniel chapter 9, and we looked at a couple weeks ago, Daniel 9, 24. It starts to share with us what Jesus will do in reconciling us to him. And so what God is saying is, look, Daniel, I'm not going to overwhelm you with everything right now. But I, this is what I, I, I want you to focus on. But just, just keep this in mind as you think about what God's saying to Daniel in, in, in chapter 12, verse 9. That in Revelation 22, verse 10, this is what John said. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. So while he tells Daniel, okay, seal it up. John's saying, okay, unseal it. And so once Jesus has come, you see the picture in, in, in Revelation unfolding in a little more detail. But this is what he tells Daniel to focus on in, in verse 10. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. So what God is saying here is, Daniel, what I want you to focus on is this purification. And some will not understand. Some will rebel against this. Uh, but, but those who have insight will understand. So he's, he's thinking still in context of resurrection, your soul, hope in God, perseverance, you win. This is what God's doing for you. So in the midst of this shattering, in the midst of this distress, compared to no other time in history, there is an ultimate hope resting in God. And so what he's, what he's leaning into in this story is what we call the gospel. And so this theme is retold, not just in Daniel chapter 12, throughout scripture. And so when I say to you this morning, we talk about eternity. I get more questions probably in this theologically than any other as I, as I talk about what faith is and who Christ is in this world. I think it's important for us when we walk away that we have an understanding when the Bible talks about the gospel, when the Bible talks about God's narrative, God's story written to us, what is that story? Like if I had to explain it to someone, I can't sit down with them and be like, well, let's read 2000 pages together, right? What is the theme? And and, and God is leaning into that in in verse 10 for Daniel. He's saying, look, these things are happening. You win, man. You're winning. In Jesus, you win. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There is victory. And so rest your soul in this picture. And what, what is this gospel picture? I want to give us just that, a little bit of that narrative story. And so I want us to see how Genesis 1 starts uh, the Bible for us to paint that picture. How, how Revelation 21 ends that picture. And then sort of look at the guts in between how it all connects together. Because the theme of the Bible is found first couple of chapters of Scripture. I mean, I, I can tell you all of Christian theology in the first three chapters of the Bible. And then, uh, or, or at least let's say the main themes of Christian theology, first three chapters of the Bible, and the end of Revelation, that picture. And then it's this, how the story unfolds for us, sort of the, the, the working out of that history for us. And it goes like this. In, in Genesis chapter 1, God speaks and things are created. In fact, uh, the story is told to us poetically, and, and, it, and it says to us over and over that God said, let there be, and something in his speaking comes into existence, the power of God creating all things intentionally and purposefully. Genesis chapter 1, God speaks, it exists. And, and, and on the back end of every time God speaks, it then says this, evening and morning the first day. So day one, God speaks, it exists. Evening and morning, the first day. Day two, God speaks. Evening and morning, the second day. And so scriptures do that for us in in Genesis six times. 
And on the sixth day, something very uh, powerful in, in our understanding happens. That, that God, it tells us in Genesis 1, and 27, God made man in his image. So the story goes, God creates everything. And the crown of his creation then becomes human beings. That on the sixth day, the last day of his creative work, God creates man in his image. In, the, in Genesis 1, and 27, it says it like this. Let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he made him male and female. And so God is in the pluralistic triunity. Let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he made him male and female. When you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, he also shares a little bit more detail of how that takes place. And it's a beautiful picture of your existence. In Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, in a very intimate way, rather than just speaking and it exists, when God makes man, it says, and God formed man. And so while all other creation is spoken into existence, when God makes man, he takes from the dirt of the ground and he intimately molds him. Very intentional. And then it says in that same verse, chapter 2, verse 7, that God breathes in him the breath of life. And that marks you different than any other created being. What, it, what it's saying to you and I is that different than any other thing created in this world, that you have the opportunity to connect to creator God, that God made you to belong to him, to have a relationship with him, which is why our theme, to experience a transforming relationship with God that transforms our relationship in this world. God created us as relational beings. Genesis 2 verse 7, God intimately forms you and God breathes his breath into you. It's, it's, it's as if to saying mouth to mouth. That's, that's the picture in the Hebrew, that mouth to mouth, God breathes life into you in this very intimate way and you you become a living being. And then, then something even further happens here that, that's even more beautiful in the expression of God's creation. That In Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, it says, By the seventh day, God completed his work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. What they're saying is, after the six days, God didn't create anymore. But rather, what he did is he, he paused, he stopped, and he rested, and he sat on his throne. But here's the really cool thing of day seven. When you look at the first six days, you see it saying, God speaks, it exists, evening and morning. God speaks, it exists, evening and morning. But when you get to the seventh day, it never says evening and morning. Why? Because in the seventh day, when God stopped creating, he sat upon his throne and he began to rule. And that ruling has never ended. God is king of kings and Lord of lords. We are under the authority of this king. There's no ending to that. And so God created us and and in his kingdom for us to experience relationship with him forever. And, And here's the tragedy of it all. Man rebelled. Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 17, God tells Adam and Eve, look, there's this tree, and from this tree, do not eat, because the moment you eat, you will surely die. And what death means in scripture isn't just you go to the grave. Death means separated from God. You think about this. God creates his kingdom, his life, brings it into existence. And and God is life itself. And when you remove yourself from God, you're separating yourself from what is life. And in Genesis chapter 2 verse 17, that's what the fruit represents. Satan shows up and says, surely this won't happen. Surely you uh, you won't die. Surely you'll become like God. And what that, the, the theme of the Hebrew expression is saying is, is rather, than, rather than believe that God has your best interest in mind, why don't you eat of the fruit, you become God, and you tell God what's right from wrong. 
And it says this, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Adam and Eve sin. And Genesis 3 starts to share that story that when Adam and Eve sin, they run and they hide from God. And I want to be honest and tell you that at that moment when perfect creator God in his holiness created us for relationship with him and man rejects God and runs away and declares themselves to be God, God didn't owe us anything. In fact, in rebelling into the kingdom in which he created, the only thing that we deserve that God could have given us is punishment. God would have been just to deliver anything in that moment. But while God is also a just God, he's a loving God. And when you read the story of Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they sin, they realize they sin, they run from God, they hide, they actually clothe themselves in aprons, which is the Hebrew word for soldier's garments, and they create the first man-made religion. As if to say to God, God, we got this. Like really, you just, you just rejected life itself. And what you see in the garden is that God pursues Adam and Eve. God says, Adam, where are you? God pursues Adam and Eve. And in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, he says to them, that woman, there will be enmity between you and the serpent, which is Satan, who's a representation of of the, the kingdom of darkness. And he says to the serpent that from this woman will come a seed that will crush the head of the serpent. And the head represents kingdom. And so God pursues us for relationship, which is why the Bible tells us in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Look what he says in verse 20. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the narrative of the story is told like this, that there is no earning your way back to God. And the reason is because you've offended a holy God. You can't do anything to bridge that gap. You need forgiveness and restoration from the one that you you have offended. And you can do good all day long, but it's never going to undo sin. Once you sin against a perfect holy God, that endures for eternity. And the only way that gap is ever bridged is one to reconcile it, and that is found in Christ. That God has pursued you for relationship and God desires that relationship with you even in sin. And the end of the Bible then tells the story like this. Revelation 21 verse 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And look, he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or any crying or any pain. The first things have passed away. So what you see in the beginning of the Bible is this creation of which God creates you intimately for relationship. And God sets upon his throne. And then man rejects God. God pursues him. And at the end of Revelation, God restores And all that in between in scriptures is how God tells that story of redemption as it unfolds. And all of it becomes a communication to us, inviting us into relationship with him. Not because you're impressive, although you were created in his image, but because he is. You're not here primarily because of the things that you can do to impress God. Like your life isn't about trying to do all these good works to appeal to God so he finally loves you. There's nothing that you're going to do 
that's going to impress the one who's capable of doing it far better than you can. That's not the reason God created you. God created you for relationship. God created you that you may know him and enjoy him forever. That's why Jesus said the greatest two commandments are love God, love others. Now here's the joy of it. When you understand the reason for which you were created and you, you enjoy that relationship for which you have in God, it's magnified in the world around you. Meaning ultimately in that relationship, you end up living a life that glorifies the goodness of who God is because of the way he has honored you and the, the dying for your sin. And so this is the picture. When you think about what Daniel's talking about in the resurrection, this is it. This is the, the restoring of what God desires in the picture of the gospel for us. This, in, in a sense, is, is really saying to us, this is the greatest love story ever told. No one, no one has ever loved you like this to the extent of this sacrifice that you can know and enjoy him for all of eternity and the life that he desires to give you. So when you think about like gathering on, on Sunday morning and, and as God's people, what our anthem is in this and, and holding God's word. And when I say things like Daniel chapter 12, like what you hold in your hands, just, just think about this for a minute. 1500 years, this book took 1500 years to put together over 40 authors, three continents, three languages, and one theme, God's redemption for you. That is unbelievable. You know, if you ask, I, I don't think in my life I could ever write a book because I, I have this nature within me that it's like, I look for the squirrel, you know, like, oh, there it goes, oh, there it goes. And, and if I write a book, I'm like three, there's three sentences into it. I'm like, okay, let's write a different book now. Okay, let's write a different book now. You know, there's no way, 1,500 years carrying a theme. How does that happen? Other than divine. And so when you just think this in connection to other religious books, there are 66 manuscripts written at different points of history. I mean, Old Testament manuscripts older than Jesus declaring the story. That's, that's the picture of what God is pointing Daniel to in this, in this story. And then at the last half of this verse, God, or the last half of this chapter, uh, God just continues to reiterate this. And so let me just read this for us. Uh, I'm going to read the first two verses, highlight the last, and then go back. So it says this, from the time that the regular sacrifice is is abolished, the abomination of desolation is set up. There will be 1,290 days. So again, he's referring to Daniel, these three and a half years. So from, from this time that uh, there's this desecration in God's holy place, the end, the 1290 days, how blessed, and he says, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 13, uh, 1335 days. I'll tell you something about that in a minute. But then he says, verse 13, Daniel asked for you. So he's saying, Daniel, this is what's going to happen. But look, here's where I want your perspective to be. As for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into the rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So God again casts Daniel towards eternity. You know, and just speaking on eternity, eternity, sometimes I I don't think we as people like to consider eternity because it puts us in the dialogue of heaven and hell and sometimes hell makes us uncomfortable. But, you know, when when you think about those subjects, um, I think it's interesting when you look at the way that the Gospels just talk about it. 
Because when you consider the scope of eternity as Jesus taught about it, do you know Jesus taught about hell twice as much as he taught about heaven? Why? To freak you out. No. Why, why would he do that? I think for us, when, when hell enters an arena of a discussion, it really has a way of sobering us up, doesn't it? Like, I've never met a guy, um, well, I meet people all the time, it's like, you know, I'm going to heaven, and heaven, and heaven, and heaven, and they're in heaven, and heaven, and heaven, and heaven. And everything, everybody talks about heaven, and just looking forward to that. I, I haven't yet to meet the person and be like, my name's Bob, heading to hell, you know, it's just, it's not the subject. We don't, we don't want to enter into that, it makes me uncomfortable to talk about that, and I think it should. Like, no one's walking in church and is like, yay, subject of hell. <laughs> like, if this is your first Sunday, maybe you could share that story. Like, I came to the church, first sun- Sunday was on hell, and I was hooked, you know? <laughs> like, it's just, but, but no one likes to talk about that. And I, I think one of the things it does is it really sobers us up to think critically for a moment. And, and you know, of all the things you could get wrong in life, your eternal destiny should not be one of them. You're going to be dead a lot longer than you're alive. And so just to have a good grasp on what we're talking about here, I think, I think is worth just taking a look, right? And if God created me for relationship and we're discussing this, how do you have it? I mean, I think it's important just to consider the scope of, of eternity because as people, sometimes we start fighting for our corner of the world, but it doesn't last. And Jesus even said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? And you talk about heaven and hell. Inevitably, at some point, somebody asks, why would God send people there? How can God be good and send people to hell? I think there's a few ways to answer that theologically, and I don't have time today to dive into all of it, but I'm going to give us some ways to just frame. When we talk about heaven and hell, what is it that we're talking about? I think there's a way to just approach that question. That question is just looking at the end of everything and just spurring a question from that. But I really want to dig a little deeper into the, the heart of what we're, we're expressing when we talk about heaven and hell. And, and I want to think of a little opposite of that question for a moment, but let me start by asking this. What is heaven and what is hell? Have you ever thought about that? What is heaven and what is hell? In, in our cultural understanding, we tend, to, we tend to paint a picture of a location, right? Heaven is this place where I want to go and hell is that place where I don't want to go. And so we think of it in terms of location, but what makes heaven heaven? It's God's presence. And remember how he painted the story in the beginning that God is the creator of life. And, and, and being in his presence, therefore, is where life itself is, which is the expression of heaven, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. When you read in Revelation chapter 21, just a few minutes ago, verses 1 to 4, it says, And God will dwell among his people. And there will, as a result of that, be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. The first is done away with. And so the, the reason that the existence of those painful things are wiped away isn't because you've reached a location, but because you're in, your, you're in his presence. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. And so let me ask it this way. Rather than say, why would God send you to hell? Let me, let me ask it this way. Do you think God would force you into heaven? 
Like if you don't want to be there, if God created you for relationship with him, but you don't love him, you don't care about him, and you don't want to be with him, do you think God would force you there? But here's the reality. When you reject God, you reject life. And when you reject life, you're rejecting what is heaven. And when you reject God who gives life, which is the picture of what heaven is about, you're embracing the opposite of that. And what is that? The absence of God. That is hell. That's what 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says. Cast from the presence of God. Like if you want an eternity with God who created you to experience it with him, God will give it to you without him by rejecting him. Now the question then becomes, why would anyone ever reject that? I mean, when you reject God in his presence, which is life, which is heaven, you're embracing exactly what Satan is about. Now someone looks at that and they say, well, I don't, I don't like God. I don't want to be where God is, but I don't want to be where Satan is. And I would say that exactly. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. What Adam and Eve did is they looked at God and they said, while Satan was speaking to them, I want to become my own God. And I'm going to tell God how to be put in his place so I can rule and reign, declare what's right and wrong. And so I think that the reason that we don't embrace that in rebellion, we reject life itself by rejecting God himself, which is the presence of heaven, is because we want to declare ourselves God. So if you ask somebody, do you want to go to heaven? Oh, sure, sure. Do you want God? No. I want to be God. I want to rule and reign. And so when you look at what the expression of what hell is, it's about us in rebellion against God. God has continued to give us the invitation into his presence for eternity. And heaven is not heaven without Jesus. And so when you think in terms of heaven and hell, this, what, what Paul is, or what, excuse me, what Daniel is saying in, in this story for us as he's writing is think of the eternal perspective and what makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. Which brings me to this. What is heaven? <laughs> I know it's God's presence. But what else is involved with that? And one of my favorite stories and just describing this happens here. And I think this is important for us just to consider. But Luke chapter 23, Jesus on the cross. And uh, Jesus is not too long from um, surrendering his spirit. And as Jesus is being crucified, there's two thieves on either side of him. One rejects him and the other one embraces him. And Jesus gives the thief this promise. He says in Luke 23, verse 43, and he said to me, truly I say to you, today, today, you shall be with me in paradise. What's that mean? When you think about the life of the thief, crucified to the cross, at the last moments of existence on earth, Never to able, never able to lift a hand to do a single good work for God. Never baptized. And God's saying to him, today you will be with me in paradise. What's God saying? Well, if paradise is heaven, he's saying to him that good works don't get you there. Because you weren't created to impress God by the things that you do that are good. 
You can glorify God with your life and you're certainly designed to do that being made in his image, but that's not what gets you to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Jesus looks to this thief and he forgives him because this thief turns to God for the relationship in which he was created. And Jesus gives him the promise, you will be with me in paradise. Now what is paradise? Paradise is a Persian word for heaven. This might give us a little bit of indication of who this thief is. And I think it's worthy just to think about what the title thief means in scripture. Thief was a generic term in the Bible. It didn't just mean a guy walked past a stand and stole an apple. A thief was a term used for really anyone that broke the law in some drastic way. Stealing an apple doesn't get you crucified. If this guy stole something, it could have been someone's life. It could have been rape. Those types of things get you crucified. And here's this thief being crucified and he's promised paradise. And and paradise, Persian word for heaven. In in, in Jesus' day, there was this picture of wealthy people that they would own these gardens, sort of like this Garden of Eden type picture. If you've ever watched the movie Aladdin, um, in the story of Aladdin, there's a couple of scenes that take place in the garden right outside of her balcony. She's got a sweet view, right? Uh, Jasmine does. And and at one point in the story, Jafar's out in the garden and he pretends, or the, I think it's the, not Jafar, but the parrot of Jafar is out in the garden that Gilbert Godfrey, horrible voice. But you, know, you, you get out there and he's got that, ah! and then he turns into Jasmine and says, uh, he, he, he pretends to be Jasmine and Aladdin comes out looking for her out in this garden and he's captured. And, and that garden scene is kind of their picture of what paradise is. That's the, the menagerie, the, this place that when, when people in that day thought about heaven, they thought about this perfect garden which wealthy people tended to own. And so Jesus, in talking to this man, uses an expression of heaven that he's probably familiar with. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, here, here's another interesting thing. Paul, then, Paul also teaches a lot about heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, he says this. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in body, I do not know, or out of of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up into the third heaven. Now, here's a different word for heaven. Now, what what is he talking about here? Well, I think it's important when you see a term used in another context, what did that term mean in the culture in which he's expressing? Now, this term, third heaven, is a term that Paul is using from Jewish community. And so when the Jews talked about third heaven, if we go back to their time period um, in which the Bible's written, they don't have telescopes, right? They, they're not Star Trekkies. They, don't, they haven't explored deep space nine. They don't, the force is not with them. The, they, they look out in the stars in the sky and they see what God has made and they worship the Lord in his creation, right? And so when, when the Jews would describe heaven, they actually layered it. They referred to it as the heavens, and so when you, when you read in the Old Testament, you'll even see this. Uh, this will be a fun exercise if you ever read the word heaven in the Old Testament. That when, when they would refer to the place where the birds flew and the clouds were, they would refer to that as, as the first heavens. Sometimes when you read heavens in the Old Testament, you'll see them describing birds or eagles or, or clouds. First heavens. They'll use the word heaven. That was the way the Jews refer to the first heaven. And then there were where the stars were. And the Jews would refer to that to, as the second heaven because they were just looking out into space, this God that created them and everything. And then when they talked about the presence of God, that was the celestial, that was the third heaven. And so when Jews talked about the presence of God, they knew celestially this was the third heaven. So what Paul's saying here is, listen guys, I'm not just floating in the clouds. 
I'm not just up in the stars, that this person out of body, he was in the celestial experience of God in his kingdom. And so in verse three, and I, I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, look at this, was caught up into what word? Paradise. Now what's Paul doing here? What Paul's doing is talking to a mixed audience. He's thinking about the Jews he's writing to. He's thinking about those that have an idea of heaven from a Persian life. And he's saying, okay, I want all these guys to understand when, the, when I'm talking about this experience, this is what heaven was. But you know what it also teaches us? Where the thief went. The thief went straight to the presence of God. The celestial kingdom where God dwells. See, in verse 2, verse 4, Paul's substituting both words for heaven as the same terms, trying to explain it to two different audiences that have pictures of what heaven is. And just like he promised the thief, you were created to have an eternal relationship with God in his presence, in the celestial kingdom forever. And when Jesus looked at the thief who was hanging on the cross, incapable of doing any good work with his life before he met the end, turns to God, not because he's good, but because God's good. And he doesn't go to heaven because he's a good person, but because he's a forgiven person created for relationship with God forever. And so what, what does Paul do, or excuse me, Daniel do here? Let me just skip on. Verse 11 and 12, he says this, for the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. So um, Daniel's referring back to the three and a half years again, 1,290 days, Daniel chapter nine. And then he says this, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. What does that mean? I will tell you, if you pick up a commentary on this, people don't say definitively. They kind of just, they more say generally, well, it probably means this. And so rather than dive into all the possibilities of what this probably means, let me just say it like this for us. At the end of three and a half years, God will return. God will set up uh, this, the, the, our experience in his presence forever. And I, I think in a larger sense, this is what he's saying to Daniel. Persevere. Daniel, persevere with an eternal picture in mind because he says, after the three and a half years, look, look forward to the days that are ahead, these 1,335 days, 45 days later. As for you, go your way to the end. Then you'll keep living your life for this goal. And then he says, then you will enter into the rest and rise again for your allotted portion. So he's saying, okay, Daniel, this, this will take place, but here's, here's your perspective. Uh, persevere with an eternal picture in mind. For the believer... God walks with us in adversity and brings us out in the other side. Like, don't just fight for a corner of this worldly kingdom that was never intended to last, but the internal kingdom that goes on forever. So what I'm saying is, everyone get in the corner, let's rock until we just say heaven, 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 back and forth. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. But what I'm saying is, in the midst of the life that you live, like when we think about eternal perspective, we're not saying, oh, forget it all. Heaven, I'm just looking for heaven. I'm just looking. I'm saying, as, as you look to the end, as he's telling Daniel in verse 13, live out for the glory of God, because one day you're going to meet God in that eternal picture. One of the people that I, I think in life that just did this beautifully 
man by the name of William Wilberforce, who was in British Parliament, served his whole life as a, as a politician, and he lived his life fighting for the abolition of slavery. William Wilberforce, godly man, lived close to Parliament. He would walk there every day. He would quote Psalm 119 as he would go to work and return from work. Love the Lord. Ten years into this battle, he still couldn't win the victory. And he just felt demoralized. He felt defeated. He goes to his Bible. He's flipping through his Bible. As he's flipping through, a piece of paper falls out. That piece of paper was written by John Wesley to him as he saw his friend laboring right before John Wesley died. And William Wilberforce picks up that paper at at that moment that he's tired and frustrated and he, he reads what Wesley wrote and he said this, unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. And the crazy part, if you read about William Wilberforce's story, is eventually his labors were not in vain that, that they passed the bill to abolish slavery. I think it was in 1834 in England. But William Wilberforce died a year before that bill was ever enacted. He never saw it happen. When he got to heaven, what do you think God said? Oh, William, I'm all about accomplishments. And since you lived your life for one thing and you couldn't even do that, I'm sorry, you got to go to the bad place. No. He just looked at a life that was faithful to the glory of his God. Well done. Well done. And we tend to measure the success of our life by our accomplishments and our accolades. I think God measures it by our faithfulness. You know, I think about living the Christian life where I am. You know, one of the hardest blows for me is other Christians. People claiming to know Jesus, but man, living like the devil. Tears me up inside. I want to live for his glory. Maybe some of the times it tears me up is because I find myself doing it. I don't know, but I don't want to shame his name. I, I love the Lord. I love what he's done for us. I love what he's doing here. I want to be a part of that divine story that God is writing in all of us as we just live that with the eternal perspective in mind. And so this is where Daniel ends. You think Daniel's in this cultural collision and he's saying to us, God, so are you. So are you. And and this world, it's going to war against, uh, against who God is. And sometimes we try to fight for the pieces of it. But look, live with the eternal perspective in mind. Everything isn't going to go your way. But it's okay. You can't dictate everything and you can't control everything. What you're in charge of is you. And here's what you can do. And live for his glory. That eternal picture of such a godly king who wants to know you and you know him and enjoy that presence forever. And and the beauty of it all, it doesn't start when you go to heaven. It starts now. God created you to know him 
now. Live in the picture of that perfection of which Jesus has done for you. Rest in the hope of where we're going in the paradise of his presence forever. And man, just shine. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.